Welcome to the Fast Lane. Nick Miles is our auto expert. So drop it into gear. You've got a green flag. Here's Nick. Well, I am very happy for the next two hours about talking about cars, and I hope you're going to be happy to listen to me talk about cars. Uh, Ryan and Jen in the studio, our auto expert, kicking off your Sunday with a whole bunch of fun. Uh, we have been driving some interesting cars. We've been shooting video uh, today and yesterday. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but we, during that shot, I found out uh, Ryan's Achilles heel. I found out what weakens him. Uh, and that's driving a Prius because uh, you don't like it, it do you? doesn't weaken me. Nobody, nobody, this is nothing against Toyota at all because the car is awesome. And they like, they are the ones with hybrid cars now. They are revolutionized it for everybody. But... Everybody on the road hates the Toyota Prius. Everybody on the road hates the Toyota Prius, and it has a reputable name of being a slow driver in the fast lane. So, uh, what would we call it? Car racism? Yeah. Racism? People are racist against your car. They're like, he's going to be slow. I'm not going to let him in. <laughs> okay, uh, so my sister has a Prius, and it's hilarious because she'll always call me and go, hey, that only cost me 40 cents, and I went all the way to Beaverton and back. True. Yeah. So True don't be all You're the oldest, on aren't you? Of course I yeah. am. Yeah. This is something only a younger sister would say, like, you know, it's really important that it just cost me 40 cents. And I'm like, yep, that was a whole tank of gas for me. We're looking at <laughs> buying a Prius, like actually buying it. We have been looking at one for a while, but it's just, I can't get over the fact so that people on the road So you should get used to you. what just happened to you this weekend. Prius <laughs> crime looks nice. Emasculated uh. by other cars. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, Priuses are great cars, but it's like minivans. Like, they, they're great when you're driving them. It just doesn't make you feel good about driving a Prius. Yeah. I mean, you get in the Pacifica and you're like, man, this is pretty Can you ever see cops driving? Can you just imagine a police chase with a Prius? Yeah, that movie with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg where they're in the Prius. <laughs> is this your cop car? <laughs> it's, it's almost like, you know, everyone would just stop and laugh if you got out after chasing somebody in a Prius. Uh, I don't think the Prius will ever be a police. Well, I, you know, in New York City, do you remember the auto show in New York City last year? I think we saw some New York uh, Police Department Priuses, but they were like, like traffic. Parking. Yeah, it's like parking. Parking, parking yeah. or traffic police, which is, you know, probably. I mean, they were a great car. Yeah, they were arresting bicycles for sure. Two, 2000, <laughs> 2001, I think it came to the United States the first year. 2000, 2001, something like that. It's been around 18 years. and uh, But it still you know, doesn't make you feel that good when you drive one. Whereas, you know, driving a Dodge Hellcat makes you feel like, ooh, all masculine and Halloween. It hurts your wallet. And then, you know. Maybe it depends what, how much is money worth to you. Oh, yeah. You know, perhaps it's not. doesn't hurt your wallet. Just, you know. Just happens. Rolls Royce <laughs> definitely hurt your wallet. If you're driving a $350,000 Cullinan, which is a new SUV, that's painful. I mean, once again. How That's much is money worth to you? Yeah. People lease Rolls Royces for silly money. That's what I would do. Um, well, yeah, but it's like 20, 24000 a month. What is it a month to own? Well, I mean, it's probably similar. Yeah. 24000 a month, this guy was leasing a Rolls Royce in San Diego. You think that most people that buy a Rolls Royce even make monthly payments, or do you think they just buy it out? No, it makes a lot more business sense to lease one. Yeah. Because you can write it off, and it's—I oh, yeah. think it it's meets the six thousand pound weight limit. So there it's is a special ta agricultural tax code in the United States where, if your vehicle is purchased by your business and it's it's over six thousand um, pounds, you can write it off. 
and I'm guessing that the Phantom is over six thousand pounds, so you could ride it off as an agricultural vehicle. You hear that, farmers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get was it fifteen thousand dollars back? I was gonna say, the, isn't the Bentley about that weight too? Uh, she might Bentley? be better pulling a plow than a Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that to me, I guess I never even thought about that, but that's a really good idea. Let's write your um, over 6,000 pound car off for a tax uh, deduction. That would work. I'm trying to look up what the tax code's called. Great. So, are we going to have one that says our auto expert on the side of it? And you're going to. Do you think I'm made of money? Well, you just said it to write off as a business expense. (laughs) I have to be able to write off $350,000 worth of tax to start with. There's a little fault to your plan. There might be a little hiccup in your idea of me buying a Rolls Royce for the show. Well, it doesn't. Doesn't kill everyone's dreams, I think, and that oh, radio is just know, thanks, a million. And not the first time I heard that today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Uh, I've been driving this QX60 was an Infinity, um, forty-four thousand dollars. This third row Infinity starts. Are you? Dr- I mean, I know you didn't drive it, Ryan, but you moved it in my driveway this morning. Yeah, it moved it in the driveway very well. Did you feel? <laughs> did you feel like it was for you know, like for, let's say a fifty for five thousand dollar vehicle? My butt isn't a very good decider of how expensive things are. I'm not, oh, not I'm good, good at you know, I was going to say, I'm wow, what does that have anything to do with I'm just not good at judging a vehicle by just sitting in it. I'm always off on the numbers, especially nowadays. Cars are just more and more expensive. Uh, I feel it, it's the other way around. I think cars are getting cheaper and cheaper for the mat, that midsection. So below, let's say from 25000 to 65000 you can get so much cool stuff for your money. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm looking at these new cars and going... I can't believe it's only that price. Well, yeah, I just mean like the money changes and it's it's just been changing. You know what I mean? No, I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. I'm very confused about what you're saying. Uh, Jen, if you had to choose a hybrid, plug-in hybrid vehicle, and you had to choose between the Toyota Prius and the Kia Nero, which would you choose? Um, The Nero. Yeah. I like the Nero. You do? Yeah. What do you like about it? I actually... That's not fair because I like the leaf. Well, I didn't, that wasn't a choice. I know it was. <laughs> you can't chocolate or vanilla, strawberry, please. Um, which so the Nero? Yeah, I like it. It's more of an SUV, right? It has has more cargo space. I know it's more of your wagon looking thing. All right, you had me, you had me at wagon. You know, I'm an order journalist, right? And if you the first time you say wagon, I'm I'm sold. Hmm? I just and he's like a puppy, you know. The wagon. ears perk up. Wagon. I love, I love wagons. <laughs> Anything's a wagon, I'm driving it immediately. No, but I like the Nero, for sure. Uh, the Nero, so this is this is the video that we uh, did for the website Order by Tell, and it's first drive this and then drive that. And our subject today was looking at replacing his 2003 Toyota Prius, and he drove the new Prius, Prime, and then he also drove the uh, the brand new Kia Nero, and he chose the Nero. Mm-hmm. Um he didn't like the look of it so much, but it was definitely more roomy. And it actually didn't realize this. The Prius Prime only has uh, four seats. Because there's a center console in the back. Remember like the old Volts used to have? The Chevy Volt? Yeah. V-O-L-T. Yes. Used to have that center seats in the back. So um, that was interesting. But he, that's what he chose. He chose that uh, Kia Nero. All right. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk about what car will be worth more after five years, which is worth uh, the most and which is worth the least. That's all coming up 
as our auto expert continues with your value for money car stuff. Keep listening. More of our auto expert with Nick Miles is coming up. Start your engines and you're off. Back to our auto expert with Nick Miles. A lot of time I'm uh, reading automotive news and uh, looking at all the latest stuff that's going on in the world. And I, uh, it always says, you know, there was a survey done that says this magic happened or that magic happened. And this is what uh, 42,000 car owners did or said. And then you get to the byline and it says uh, this survey was done by iccars.com. So I said, you know, this is like super interesting. IC cars seem to be uh, getting the pulse of the nation and doing a lot of interesting research. So they do this survey which says the vehicles after five years, which retain most of their value or retain the best value and the vehicles that lose the, the most value. And I started to look at this and uh, I was very surprised at the result. So sent Jen a note and said, hey, Jen, let's, uh, let's get someone from IC Cars on. And so I randomly went to the bottom of the website, emailed their contact information, and sure enough, coming flying back was uh, Julie Blackley from IC Cars that said she'd love to talk to us on the radio. So she's joining us now. So the Jeep Wrangler is worth or loses least amount of money after five years. Is that right? Yes. So it's actually the the lowest appreciating model is the Jeep Wrangler Unlimited, which is the four-door version of the Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> and it it loses 27.3% of its value after five years. Which is super interesting because I was, I just drove a Jeep Wrangler from Chicago to Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, to Indianapolis and back to Chicago. It was about 600 miles and really fell in love with the un- unlimited version of the 2018. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, I want to buy one of these, but I don't think it's going to hold its value. So this is about the same time that the survey came out. Super surprised with that. What I was even more surprised at, I feel a little bad for Nissan, is which vehicle loses the most amount of money. That was a Leaf, right? Right. So the Nissan Leaf, which is the electric vehicle, um, and just as context, the average vehicle after five years loses just over half of its value, so actually 50.2%. So like I mentioned before, the Wrangler on the lower end is at 27.3%, and on the higher end is the Nissan Leaf, which loses 71.7% of its value after five years. Ouch, that's very painful if you own a Nissan Leaf that is less than five years old. Uh, This, uh, to me, super interesting. So how do you go about collating all this information, Julie? Yep. So just one thing about the LEAF, as an electric vehicle, um, we found that so the top two highest appreciating vehicles were electric vehicles, and we realized that there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is because of the government incentives that, you know, that slashes the amount off the price right off the bat, and um, when people are taking its value into account five years later, they don't factor that in. So it depreciates a lot. Right. Um, yeah. So that's one thing about electric vehicles that makes them depreciate a lot. The other and thing also is the technology. Yeah, that was, I was going to mention that. So uh, I think when the Prius came out, everyone was mentioning the batteries were like to last 10 years before they had to be replaced. And they were only guaranteeing them for mm-hmm. 10 or seven years. So if you're buying a five-year-old vehicle, you could be only have an existing three years of guaranteed battery life left. So that, that's another consideration, right? 
Exactly, and, ra- and range anxiety as well. So um, the range of these keep improving. So with every, you know, um, later or every new model, um, the, you know, the older technology is, you know, not as desirable because you want one that can go farther on a charge. The difficulty with this survey is, the vehicles have to be five years or older, so we're really talking about a year a vehicle that was new five years ago uh, versus the latest versions of things like the Chevy Bolt, B-O-L-T, rather than Volt, and things like the right. new Nissan Leaf is a completely different vehicle than it was five years ago. Exactly. So we, we do other, you, you mentioned, um, kind of gave background on our company, but we do studies every month. Um, so we're a data analytic, we're a vehicle data company and we run, we, we're an automa- automotive search engine and we run our search engine using big data analytics. So we take that data that we have and we run studies. So we, we also do studies about one year vehicle depreciation and three year vehicle depreciation as well. But this particular study looked at five year depreciation. Uh, after the the one and the three, is the picture very different, or is it sort of similar along the same lines? Um, it is similar in the fact that you know luxury vehicles depreciate more than the average vehicles. Um, pickup trucks retain their value better, um, as well as SUVs. So some of the models are the same. So it's, it's a similar mix of vehicles, but there's there's some variance in the list. And the reason why we looked at five years is because the average vehicle owner um, turns in their new cars, I think, at around six to seven years. So we were looking at, you know, what the average person turned their vehicle in, like what the value would be when the time came for them to turn their vehicle in. I mean, it's super helpful, too, if you start looking at Mm -hmm. it. Uh, uh, And there's no super surprises in here. Like, uh, I mean, I would have predicted it was pretty much the way it is. Uh, Tundra, Tacoma, Forerunner, those type of vehicles, which, you you, you know, people, if you ever drive a Forerunner onto the forecourt of a gas station, somebody in some time is going to offer you cash for it, especially if it's an older one just because they're so sought after. So those are the ones that are sort of more desirable. And then the ones that are sort of breaking technology, uh, changing the way that we do driving and and have a little bit of a fringe appeal tend to be the ones that sort of lose their value the most. But it's the workhorses of America that seem to last a long time. How many people did you actually survey to find all this out? So this, it's, it's more, it's a study, not a survey. So we looked at data on 4.3 million new and used car sales. So we looked at data rather than surveying consumers. Do you have a lot of interns? That sounds like an awful lot of data. We, we have one dedicated data scientist that just crunches numbers and runs queries all day long. He's, he's quite impressive, and he, he runs this data, um, sends it to me. I look through it. I get his input with, you know, picking out the data points and putting the survey together. What other sort of surveys, because I notice there's quite a few surveys that come up every uh, every year that, that you're attributed to. So what other surveys do you do? So we do some on the longest lasting vehicles, and we actually do two versions of that study. So one of them, we look at the vehicles that are most likely to reach 200,000 miles. So we do it from a mileage standpoint. And then we also look at the vehicles that people tend to hang on to for the longest amount of time, um, which 
people are interested in. And like I mentioned before, we do depreciation after three years. So we look at cars that we consider. So the highest depreciating vehicles after three years, we consider those to be the best deals for used car shoppers. So that's another interesting study. Um, We look at... um, we have some studies devoted to green vehicles. We have, you know, to see what states adopt them the most. Um, vehicles that people give up the most often after one year is another study that we do. So if you look on our website, you can see all these all these studies that we do. I can remember some of the results. Mm-hmm. I think the Sequoia was yes. the vehicle that uh, did over 200,000 mm-hmm. miles, more Sequoias than any other Toyota Sequoia. Right. Yeah, see, mm-hmm. I read Definitely. all your surveys for some strange reason. They pop up in the news all the time. Uh, is right. it, These are sort of things to help you that can help us with buying patterns, right? Mm-hmm. So we decide, you know, we're going to go out and look for a vehicle. I want to keep this vehicle for 12 years and I want it to last X amount mm-hmm. of time. You can look at what more likely, what you're more likely to get your money out of. Right. So that's, that's our motivation for these studies. Um, we're, we're an automotive search engine, so we... We're dedicated to helping consumers find the best deals, but we also want to equip them with the information to make the most educated car purchase possible, which is why we run these studies. Because every study that we do, there is some, you know, takeaway for the consumer um, to help them with their vehicle purchase. Julie, how can we find out more? Where? What's the website? Where do people go? Yep, so it is iccars.com, and I'm going to spell that out, so it's I-S-E-E-cars.com. Excellent, that's Julie Blackley from iccars.com. Go and read some of their surveys. Highly entertaining. SEMA is coming up. We're going to be heading to Las Vegas to see how big and how monstrous you can make a truck. We'll talk about that coming up on Our Auto Expert. Stay tuned. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Jump right in and put the pedal to the floor. Our auto expert with Nick Miles continues. Now that is very apt, by the way, because putting the pedal to the floor is exactly what's going to be happening to, well, you might be able not to reach the floor in some of those SEMA trucks. SEMA, <laughs> uh, which is kind of the uh, aftermarket show in Las Vegas, happens every November, uh, is not this coming week, but the week after. And we, Ryan and I will be there. Jen, you really wanted to go, didn't you? Yes, I did. And I, um, why are you going? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I invited my sister and she was just wasn't into it. And so I'm not going. Ke- Kelly, why aren't you going with Jen to SEMA? I know, I know right? you hear us. I know she does. She's listening right now. So it, the deal is, this is it, oh, uh, Ryan, this is like the Jen show. Mm-hmm. It's like performance, American it cars, is. trucks that you could walk underneath with Kelly on your shoulders and, big and still not touch speakers. the bottom of the truck. It's big Disneyland speakers. for adults. It's Disneyland last for year, there Maybe was I should a, just go. There was a fridge company there last year that had a solar refrigerator that made ice. From the lights inside of the show. Inside of SEMA. <sighs> they was making ice cream inside the show. Crazy nuts. The stuff they have there is crazy. A lot of the stuff is way out of my league. Like it's well, bolt-on compressed do hickey thing. And I, I have no idea what they do. Okay, so maybe I should just go. <laughs> All right. Leave my sister here. You can share Ryan's hotel room. 
Ew, no. <laughs> Apparently, she didn't say bed. He said, <laughs> uh, you, if you've never been to SEMA, uh, uh, you should go. It's a, it's one of the car pinnacle. I think it's the biggest auto show in the world. It it's is for the aftermarket. aftermarket auto show. It's kind of like, uh, if you've ever been to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which happens in January, it's just like all the electronics everywhere. It's, it's bigger than that. And every time you go, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to look forward to it. And then I work so hard and I get so tired. And I, walking so far, I, the people actually, you have to walk so far at SEMA. There's so many booths. That Nobody's paying rent, attention. They rent the scooters. Yeah. Just to drive around. Able-bodied people renting electric scooters to drive around because it's just too far. Crashing into all Well, there's five buildings. It's well, the convention center in Vegas is five buildings and everything. I've so they, that's when CEA, it's... I'm telling you, it's crazy. This is bucket list stuff, so I really should probably go. Yeah, I mean, all right. Not to mention you sit, like I always say, out the window and you look at all of them driving around. My friends, uh, my friends, Aaron and Chrissy are going. Uh, My uh, other half's brother is going. Uh, Oh, Brian? Yeah, Brian is going. Uh, there's a lot yeah, of he people was there doing. with us last year. We yes. ran him in. We ran in the, the airport. We, we didn't ran him in anything. We we met right. him at the airport. We ran into him at the airport on the way home. Uh, you know, and then something big is happening. If you're going to SEMA this year, something huge is happening on Tuesday night. Huge, like ginormous. Uh, we're un- <laughs> we're unveiling the truck that we worked on. Oh yeah, that is huge. Um, Big that, stuff. That is our very first truck for our charity, which we formed, which is called Animal Rescue Rigs. And the idea of Animal Rescue Rigs is that in times of natural disaster, what you do is we supply the rig to a local humane society who can go out and rescue animals with it. And what we're doing is building these trucks. We work together with the boys from Hard Notch Customs with Wheelcraft, Pat over at Wheelcraft with Joel and his brother at Hard Notch Customs. We work with Nissan who gave us the truck in the first place. Uh, Mo- um, uh, Nissan, Mossy Nissan in San Diego. Uh, we Nissan bought us a a $5,000 raft to go on the roof. It's like rescue kitted out with winches. Uh, they're wrapping it this week, and then it'll be unveiled. It's got flashing lights on the top. That's exciting. It's like a uh, full remodel, too, looking at the transformation from beginning to end, just a normal Titan. It was a V8, right? It was yes, a, yeah, HD. Just a, a normal <laughs> HD. <laughs> oh, and we'll be talking about it more next week, too. Yeah, I'm they, actually having everybody in, in the right? studio, yeah? Uh, we can talk about... Uh, you throw some metal on anything and it just looks beautiful. And the Hard Notch guys just threw a bunch of metal on it and it just looks gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> it was very skilledly shaped. I was going to say, you don't <laughs> just throw metal on something. <laughs> uh, so, you know what I'm most looking forward to? Saving the lives of animals. I'm just like, I, I put together a video of some of the rescues. With Sarah I'm McLaughlin. Not, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to lie to you, though. Um, I... Honestly, had a cry when I was making the video. It was like really hard to watch these barns on fire and listening to some of the stories was just like horrible. And so I'm happy that we've managed to make this Nissan Titan HD truck along with our partners. We didn't do a lot apart from sitting in the director's chair and telling people what it needed to have and then have it revealed at SEMA, which is going to be amazing. And this is the concept version of the vehicle. It's called Pause One for short. The actual vehicle will be uh, then we, it'll it will have the production vehicle next year, which will be the, the. There's still a lot of work to do on the production vehicle, but it already looks amazing. I'm super. And I've you know something. This is the crazy thing. You guys are gonna. We'll we'll talk about this next week. From the day that the truck arrived in this city 
to the day it's at SEMA, I have never seen it. Never. I've, I've seen, seen it more than you have. Though. I've seen pictures. I've negotiated. I have designed. I have done a lot of work with everybody to get this truck, but I've never physically seen the truck. So it's going to be hard to stand on that stage at SEMA 5 p.m. on Tuesday when they pull the silks off this vehicle. It's going to be really hard to see it for the first time. Are you going to cry? Uh, I hope. Well, you know what would make, make it all better is we're trying to negotiate with uh, Las Vegas animal shelters to bring in some animals that were rescued from that the, the hurricanes and stuff. Oh, just, it'll be... I'll just be cuddling with puppies and trying to take them all home. I already have five. I don't think I'll, uh, I'll probably be told, if you're coming home with a dog, don't bother. <laughs> I was told Can you see no Nick walking dogs. around with all these dogs? No more dogs, no more cars. Like, right, I'm not coming home, but I'm sending the dog home. All right, still more to come on our auto expert. We're going to find out about some cool new materials that Ford has invented. And they'll be putting them on the cars of the future to make sure they're almost silent inside. It's coming up. On our auto expert on a Sunday. Stay tuned. More of our auto expert with Nick Miles is on the way. Our auto expert continues. Here's your host, Nick Miles. Sunday, talking about cars here on our auto expert. I'm Nick Miles, and uh, we have uh, prepped you for the next week. But it's now time to talk about some of the interesting pieces of news that happened over the last week. Uh, BMW announces their new X7 SUV. We first saw this, I think, at uh, the LA Auto Show. Joining us on the phone, John Shipley from BMW. Uh, we have waited a long time for this, John. It's finally arrived. This is the biggest SUV that BMW have ever offered. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is an SUV that we all have been waiting for. So the concept... Uh, was at the LA Auto Show. I'm not sure. Was that where it was re re released or shown for the first time? I think it might have been shown in uh, Geneva or somewhere earlier in the year. Yeah, I can't recall exactly where it was shown for the first time, but when we did unveil the concept, it certainly did uh, whet the appetite of all of our consumers out there who've been waiting uh, for this car to be unveiled. There were some interesting things in the concept, like uh, a single, uh, I would say, pinnacle where the seat attached to one single point, where the seat attached to the floor. It was kind of like on a metal post that stuck out of the floor. I, I'm presuming I haven't seen inside the new one. I've only seen the exterior, but I'm presuming those things probably uh, were just very conceptual, and the actual vehicle it doesn't have some of the very interesting things that the, the concept had on it. That would be correct, but I can tell you that one thing that we are introducing, which is going to be somewhat unique to this uh, specific segment, is the optional captain's shares. So, you know, the X7 is our first seven-passenger SUV, which means that we have a seat configuration of two seats in the front, three in the middle, and two in the rear. But with the optional captain's shares, you actually change that configuration to a two-two-two. I really like that idea because uh, there's nothing like the kids complaining about having to get back into that third row and tip seats forward. Captain's chairs make it, makes it much more comfortable. Absolutely, and it does add a little bit of, of a premium experience. Um, you know, not only does it provide easier access to the third row should our customers wish to use the third row more, off, third row more often, 
but it, it, it does provide a, a very nice uh, scenery. If you're sitting in the third third row seat, you can you can see the unobstructed view to the front of the vehicle. So the consumers presumably have been saying that five seats wasn't enough for them and the X5? Well, I'm not sure if that's what they were saying, but, you know, certainly um, we do know that there are a lot of customers out there who, who wish to have uh, more cargo capacity. Uh, and, and while the X5 did offer uh, a third row seat as an option, this one is, is a little bit larger and, and affords customers who sit in the third row much more headroom and uh, much more comfortable environment. Uh, speaking of cargo space, uh, the all-new X7 is almost 15 cubic feet larger in the trunk area than than its a smaller sibling, the X5. Uh, that just means, for me, more room for dogs. I went to the X5 launch in Atlanta, and some of the technology on the X5 is pretty unbelievable. Uh, the idea that this vehicle can trace its last 50 meters and back out the way you came in, or that you can set the uh, the ge- geographic points and have the car actually guide itself, for instance, from the end of your drive automatically into your garage. Is the X7 likely to have a lot of the features, those cool new features that the new X5 has? Yeah, absolutely, it will. Uh, you know, we see a lot of the new features that you've mentioned just now debuting with the all-new X5, which, as you might already know, it, 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 we went to production with that vehicle in August, and it'll, it'll start to show up in dealers in just a couple weeks' time. So with the X7, uh, we go into official production in December of this year, and it will start to appear in uh, the first quarter of next. But, yes, all of the technologies that were found on the X5 will also be on the X7. Uh, BMW seems to have a lot of SUVs out, a lot more than uh, many of its competitors. There's an X1, 2, 3, 4, uh, 5, 6, 7. Does that mean there may be room for an 8? Well, you know, we can't give away specific plans of what we are doing in the future, but certainly we are evaluating uh, all sorts of segments to to satisfy the appetite of this SUV market. I'm sure you could tell us. Nobody nobody listens to this show, so I, I don't think anybody would know. It'd just be between you and me. Sure, Nick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the idea of this uh, this vehicle coming to market pretty quickly after it was announced, is it going to be shown? Are we going to get to see it at the LA Auto Show at the end of November? Is there some places it'll appear so the public can actually get a good view of it? Yeah, actually, if it if it has not officially been announced, then, then I guess I'm telling you now it will have it. It, both its world uh, premiere and its North American debut at the LA Auto Show. All right, so the the features uh, and the car, we get to see it. it. It seems to fit in line with many of the other BMW vehicles. I mean, it, it, you haven't departed from the, the kidney-shaped grille or anything like that. Is there anything about this, apart from the technology, that we haven't seen on any BMW vehicles? Um, you know, something that's very unique uh, to the X7, and, and gosh, and you know, other than the third row seating and the fact that it is the largest SUV that we've produced, you know, it, 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 it does follow a lot of our other SUVs in terms of the fact that it has the very uh, X vehicle, meaning that it has a, a trapezoidal bumper, it has the underwrite protection, and it has a very sculpted hood, which, you know, it just exudes an athletic rug, ruggedness. So it, it fits in very well uh, within the other 
uh, X model range. Um, you know, some of the nice things are that we will have a lot of convenience and comfort features that uh, are going to be standard on this vehicle, you know, such as the, the automatic opening and closing of the rear a tailgate, which, which, you know, we, it will have a split tailgate in the rear at, at the oh, X5. Nice. You know, we're only one of, one of two, um, uh, automotive manufacturers that still produce, uh, this type of, of, uh, tailgate. So, yeah. So, you know, it will, it will still have a lot of equipment that you're already familiar with in our lineup today. Uh, it just, it just is, it will be the, the largest SUV. And, you know, like the, the front end, it really is meant to uh, attract attention you know it's a very impressive upright front silhouette um and you can see how the kidney grills if you you've seen the concept pictures or even the the pictures that we released this past tuesday that the kidney elements have a formal connection so again you know it's it fits in nicely within the suv family as well as the other products that we make but it is the largest uh, suv for bmw I think one of the surveys that surprised me the most from consumers who take their vehicles off-road was the fact that less than 1% of Land Rover owners take their vehicles off-road. Surprising driving the new X5, I spent more time driving it off-road than I did on-road, and it is as capable as many of those uh, SUVs that were designed specifically for off-road trekking around the world. Uh, the X5 did no had no problem fording water, traveling over things that I might have been sheepish to do in anything like a BMW in the past. Is the X7 going to be held to the same off-road standards as the X5? Absolutely. Um, these vehicles are not only capable on the road, but they are quite capable off the road. And, you know, just as you mentioned, we know that a lot of our U.S. customers might, might not want to take them off-road, but this is a vehicle that's not just built for the U.S., it's built for all over the world. So certainly there may be other markets around the world where off-road capabilities are, uh, you know, much more used, let's say. But, uh, you know, we have a product that will, that will meet those expectations of those customers. And uh, even with the X5, the X7 will also, uh, you'll have the option to get the off-road package uh, on this vehicle, which, which adds, you know, a lot of, of, of extra... Uh, performance and sportiness, you know, for the vehicle when when you do decide to take it on uh, back roads. Uh, I think one of the things that also surprised me about the X5, and that's really my reference point here because this sort of seems to be the older sibling or the bigger sibling from the X5, but is the fact that this car is pretty much uh, ready for autonomy. It has all the sensors, all the cameras. Uh, it just needs, obviously, the legal clearance and the software to do that. Uh, one of the things that the X5 does is it will steer for you uh, if you're driving down the freeway. Not that it's uh, uh, made to feel you to take your hands off the wheel because that's not the plan but if you put it in full cruise control the vehicle will actually guide you through the lanes and uh, it will do the steering and keep you in the center of the lane and presumably every vehicle from here on in from bmw is going to be designed and built to the same standard so if autonomy comes within this vehicle's lifetime it'll have no problem uh, adapting to those needs presumably the the x7 is going to have all of those bells and whistles on it? Yes. Yeah, so what you're referring to is active driving assistant professional, which is comprised of the extended traffic jam assist with the extended hands-off time, as well as the lane-keeping assistant um, with active side collision protection. Now, 
for this segment and for this customer, we have went ahead and we've made it standard equipment for the V8 variant, but it is available as an option for the, the six-cylinder variant, which is the X-Tri 40i. So explain to me how this works, especially, uh, in, you know, with the new steering system that the X5 has. Uh, explain to me how it works in the, in the 7. Do you, you have to keep your hands off the wheel, but you, you can take them off the wheel for short periods of time, right? You can. So extended traffic jam assist, it really supports the driver uh, during those uh, driving situations like stop and go traffic. Um, and what happens is it, it monitors the road ahead as well as the vehicle in front of it. And there is also a camera that is new and it's installed within the instrument cluster of the vehicle. And it's actually watching your eyes. And as long as the driver is found to be attentive to the road ahead, you know, certainly we don't want drivers to be distracted by, uh, let's say, texting, for instance, or reading. Um, then the need for the driver to place their hand on the wheel um, every 30 to 50 seconds may not be required. So it certainly is uh, a system that is monitoring not only the cars outside, but uh, the driver within. One of the things, obviously, that people want to know if they're in the like, market for a large SUV is uh, the price. Uh, do we have any idea where that price is going to start? Is it going to be competitive? Oh, it's, it's going to be very competitive. In fact, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you, you know, but or maybe you might be aware, but this past Tuesday at 6.01 uh, p.m. Eastern time is when we had the official start of communication for the all-new X7. And with it, we went ahead and uh, discussed what the pricing is going to be. So the pricing will start at 73900 for the X7X Drive 40i, that's the six-cylinder, and it'll be 92600 for the X7X Drive 50i. And uh, these will be, as you said, available with the beginning of the year, so they're starting in production. Uh, are they going to be made in the United States, or are they going to be made in a different plant? No, they will be made here in uh, Plant Spartanburg in our facility in, in South Carolina. And uh, presumably we'll be able to sort of order them almost immediately and we can see the delivery coming early in 2019? So, yes. So because we are on a, a global launch schedule, um, we will start to produce the units for the U.S. market towards the middle to the end of December. Uh, then we'll ramp up production uh, to ensure that the BMW goes on sale in March of 2019. Excellent. John, if we want to find out more, where do we go? BMWUSA.com. All right, John Shipley from BMW. Thank you, John, for telling us about the brand new X7. We'll look forward to that. Looking forward to test driving it personally. Uh, very impressed by the BMW X5. Coming up, we're going to talk about this new material that Ford have managed to put inside their vehicles, and it'll make it all quiet. It's never been used before, by the way, inside a car. That's coming up. Don't go away. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Our auto expert will be right back. It's our auto expert with Nick Miles. Welcome back to our national radio show. Our auto expert is also online, autoexpert.com, where you can hear all of the previous shows that we've done in podcast form. Download them to your phone and make the rest of your family suffer. You can also uh, check us out on social media. Our auto expert is online as well at Instagram, Facebook, 
and Twitter. Now, Ford Motor Company have been one of the first to use new materials in their vehicles. I do hearken back to the soy seats inside vehicles. They were one of the first people to ever use soy in a vehicle and definitely the first people to use soy in a seat. Strange to be sitting on beans, but it's very comfortable. They also used recycled water bottles, uh, which I think uh, was a great way to find a use for something that's discarded in huge quantities around the world. But they are going to be using graphene in their new vehicles. And to make sense of this from for us is Debbie Molesky, who is uh, at Ford. Debbie, graphene, why is this a big deal? Well, graphene was discovered first isolated in 2004, but it's the only two-dimensional organic molecule. So it's a bunch of carbon rings hooked together. And as you can imagine, it has incredible mechanical properties, 200 times stronger than steel, one of the most conductive materials in the world. But since 2004, scientists have been trying to figure out how to use it practically. And so we are really proud to be the first to use it for sound absorption under the hood in our vehicles. Now, this sounds very Big Bang Theory, uh, breaking through sort of scientific uh, barriers to use this. But the question is, does it make a big difference when you use it in a vehicle? Actually, it does. So the way we were able to implement this is a very, very, what we discovered is a very tiny amount of graphene, less than one half of 1% when put into a foam material ends up reducing the noise by about 17%. So a tiny bit having such a big improvement is really what we're excited about. So graphene in its sort of natural form or its base form, it, what, what does it look like? When you see it in the lab in a, in a dish or in a jar, is it like, I, I imagine it to be like a gray powder. Yes, actually, that's exactly right. It's a gray to black, really, really fine powder material. And again, as you, if you take a tiny, I mean, this is almost an undetectable amount. It completely changes the structure of the foam. So it reduces the bubble size. In the foam material, um, all of these improvements in the mechanical properties, it all affects how that noise is absorbed. So I think uh, what we're super proud of is the fact that we made a big discovery on how to get this material commercial. Now, one of the biggest problems is uh, originally to reduce noise in a vehicle. You'd have to pile loads and loads of foam under the floorboards, padding everywhere. And what did that do? It increased the weight of the vehicle, which increased the fuel consumption. Yeah, so it reduces the density of the foam that we put it into. So it does decrease the weight of the material. And it also, it also increases the heat properties of those materials. So as we get more and more efficient hotter running engines under the hood, this is a big uh, breakthrough as far as dealing with that heat. Now, you're using it in the engine bay. Do you think it has applications outside of just engine housing? So actually, interesting you say that because since we announced our use of graphene for under hood, uh, I've gotten a lot of phone calls talking about can we use it in the, head, in the headliner above your head. There's a bit of foam in back. Can we use that to uh, dampen noise in the vehicle? And so, of course, we're going to go down that path and take a look. Actually, I think it came out of frustration. So we were trying to compound, like everyone else, um, the graphene materials into hard plastics um, to get them strong enough to replace steel. That's the whole, like, holy grail. And since we make foam, we're the people who invented soy foam here at Ford. 
um, we also threw it into a foam just out of frustration that we couldn't make it work in plastic, and voila, you get all these great improvements in urethane foam. Uh, is it a little bit like uh, making sort of gold out of steel, you know, when you do something like that, you make a discovery because it, you suddenly see the applications? Yes, and, you know, it won't be just within the automotive industry. That's the really cool part is now other industries can think about how they can apply this to foam products. And so the whole hope here is that we improve, uh, we lightweight things, we improve fuel efficiency, make people's lives better in a, in a way like this where it's quieter in your car. Now, often it's the bean counters that kill all of our dreams of science and making things much better. Uh, is this going to end up being super expensive or is it going to be cost efficient enough that it can go into every Ford? So the key here is that we're using such a small amount of the graphene material, we can actually afford it. We're reducing density. We can make these parts thinner now because of all the great noise absorption. And so we are. this is a really cool, cost-efficient technology that not only the auto industry, but a lot of industries should be able to afford. Are you still pursuing trying to put it into hard plastic, or now that you've discovered it, it fits into foam so well, looking at the possibilities of using that everywhere else? Oh, you're darn right. We're still working with it in the lab in hard plastics, and, you know, it's slow progress, and um, someday we hope to get there because that would make one of these super materials where you could take plastic materials that are so strong that you could replace metals with them. So that's, you know, that's still out there and we're still trying hard. Is there a lot of, uh, I, I guess you can't tell me, but is there a lot of technology breakthroughs that you guys are working on? Is this, is this changing science of cars? You know, there are many brand new materials. It's a really exciting time to be a scientist. So all the young people should really be thinking about cool careers in science. Um, the world is shifting. We're trying to make things more sustainable. We're trying to make materials that don't come out of the ground, um, aren't petroleum-based plastics, but use plant-based materials so that we can re-grow um, the materials. And we're also looking at the back end. So when a car is done at end of life, we haven't done much with the plastics, but what could we do in the future to reduce landfill it's a super exciting time to work on materials. All right, final question for you, Debbie. Uh, if I'm going to go buy a Ford that has graphene in the foam in the hood, when am I likely to see that? So we have um, committed to uh, putting this into production by the end of year uh, this year. So any moment now, the lever's about to be turned. There's nothing stopping it, and it will be an F-150. It will be in Mustang, and we have a plan to put it into many of our vehicles, so most. I'm excited. I have to tell you, I'm totally excited about this. Uh, that That's kind of cool. All science stuff here. The Big Bang Theory right explained right here on our Auto Expert. And uh, Debbie, uh, thanks for joining us from Ford, and we'll look forward to seeing that in our future cars. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, if you want to check out this interview and more, our Auto Expert is an archive of every show that we have. More of our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. 
Nick Miles, and this is our Auto Expert. Now, don't forget, you can follow us 24-7 at autoexpert.com. You can listen to the previous shows at that address, and you can also check out all of our television segments across the Fox Television. All right, let's talk about fuel economy. There has been some big changes and some big suggestions in what will happen back with all of the Trump administration addressing some of the fuel economy standards. And uh, from the Consumer Federation of America, he is the man in charge. Jack Gillis joins us. Jack, there was a recent survey that showed American consumers seem to be quite happy where they are. Yes, they are. In fact, uh, the fuel efficiency standards are one of the most supported standards in America. And what's particularly important about it is it's a bipartisan support. 61% of Republicans support the standards, 77% of Democrats, and 66% of Independents support these standards. Now, in Washington, here in Washington, that's pretty unusual when you get that kind of bipartisan support for something. We always think that it's uh, Democrats leading better fuel economy. They want uh, a greener and more uh, supple land, and Republicans want to use more oil. So is there going to be uh, any changes because of this survey, or do you think it's just going to be an unnoticed thing by the current administration? Well, what's happening right now is the current administration is attempting to roll back these standards. Uh, and they're relatively elegant standards because they were put in place in 2012 and supported by 13 car companies, the unions, the environmentalists, the consumer activists. And it's, it's rare that you get such across-the-board support for, for those standards. Um, right now, however, in an effort to across-the-board deregulate, uh, the president has made the decision that this is one of the things that he wants to throw by the wayside. And we're saying that, wait a minute, uh, some of the biggest victims of a rollback in the fuel efficiency standards would be the rank-and-file supporters of President Trump who depend on their cars for their families, for their work, and whose budgets are really going to be busted by increased gas prices. If we're a supporter of uh, the fuel economy standards and we want to help change the government's mind, uh, is there something else that people can get on board with this survey or is it just hopefully the, uh, the legislators listening to the public's complaints? Well, it's, you know, it sounds tried and true, but contacting your own uh, congressperson or your own senator is always a good thing to do. They count the, they count the votes, and if they hear from their constituents, uh, that's a very powerful motivator for them to hold the line and not roll back these standards or not allow the administration to roll them back. Now, the standards were put in place with a step, and so every several years there would be a new standard that would be introduced. Is that likely? Uh, I know that the government, uh, the current administration, had looked at extending some of those steps. Uh, at least, uh, are they going to um, cancel this program altogether, or at least they're going to let some of those steps just stand where they are and, and maybe not increase the fuel savings? Because I know in the future we're expecting more and more measures to come in which allow less fuel consumption. 
Yes, well, right now the proposal from the administration is to halt the increase in the standards at 2021. Uh, the standard was supposed to go all the way to 2025, um, but then it would flatline at 2021, which, um, you know, could be very expensive for consumers of those vehicles uh, in the future. Is, uh, so currently, uh, what is the standard and where are we expecting it to go so people have an understanding of uh, what we're looking for in fuel savings? Well, one of the things that's so elegant about these standards is that they are based on the size of the vehicle, or what we call the vehicle footprint. So larger SUVs, pickups, which are heavier and more difficult to make fuel efficient, have lower requirements than uh, subcompacts uh, that uh, are easier to make fuel efficient. Um, right now, the uh, standard was intended to reach about 40 miles per gallon on average by 2025. With this rollback, we may only get to about 32 to 33 miles per gallon uh, when it gets rolled back. So the upside to a lot of this legislation is that technology is improving in fuel efficiency. We've seen car companies like Volvo introduce a supercharger and a turbocharger together in their engines. They're only producing four-cylinder engines right now. A lot of other people are putting technology in vehicles. Uh, they're learning how to make them lighter. They're learning materials that make them lighter. Uh, will that advancement in all this latest tech breakthrough in engineering suddenly disappear if these fuel standards disappear? Well, we hope it won't disappear, but what's fascinating about this potential rollback is some of the biggest opponents are those significant American companies who have invested in developing the technology needed by the car companies to meet these standards. And they're saying, wait a minute, if you roll these standards back, uh, our investment will be for naught, and all the employees that we have in these various companies that are building technology for the vehicles uh, will lose their jobs. Um, finally, I think probably the most significant concern is in terms of our global competitiveness. Every other country is forging ahead with very fuel-efficient vehicles. If we roll back our standards, the biggest losers will be those big car companies in Detroit who will sit back on their laurels, not produce the fuel-efficient vehicles that they need to be competitive in the rest of the world. Is there um, any idea on what might happen to alternative fuels? And, and, you know, at this point, um, diesel is was a great, uh, I would say, financial obligation to people because it was uh, at one point cheaper than gas and uh, cars burn less diesel. But is it likely that those sort of different fuels are going to get pressured to ethanol, uh, the, those type of things, or is this just purely about gasoline? Well, at this point, it's purely about gasoline. But in terms of alternatives, uh, every single automobile manufacturer around the world has announced significant plans to electrify their vehicles. Uh, and one of the reasons why they were planning to electrify the vehicles is because that's an easy way to make meet the fuel efficiency standards uh, in very gross terms. So we expect electrification to continue, and hopefully that will offset uh, the lack of fuel efficiency in at least some of the domestically produced vehicles. Uh, there's maybe a separation coming, and, and you can talk about that, between the rest of the world and the United States. 
companies or countries like China absolutely have to go to alternative fuels because of air quality. Uh, Europe is very strongly pushing towards uh, more fuel-efficient vehicles and uh, new forms of technology. Will America be the odd man out if we don't join the rest of the world and separate ourselves? Very likely we will be the odd man out. Not only uh, will we be the odd man out from an environmental perspective, uh, but at, here at the Consumer Federation of America, while environment is important, we're more concerned about consumer pocketbooks, and it will simply cost more and more money to own and operate a vehicle in the U.S. than it does in other parts of the country, and that's going to hurt our economy, and it's going to hurt the average American household. At some point, uh, doesn't it become cheaper to buy perhaps an older vehicle uh, that consumes more gas because buying the, the new vehicles with the new technologies are so expensive? Or, or how does it work in the pocketbook of America? Well, you know, interesting, that's a good question because we have done and the government has done a tremendous cost-benefit analysis. And we estimate that the cost of increasing the fuel efficiency of these vehicles, say the, 19, the 2018, 2019 vehicles, the payback period can be as short as 18 months to three years. So after you've owned that car for 18 months, it's going to start saving you money. Um, yes, fuel efficiency technology costs, but it's one of those expenses that has an excellent payback. All right, Jack, uh, Jack Gillis is from the Consumer uh, Federation of America. If we want to find out more about this, Jack, where do we go? Uh, well, you can come to our website at consumerfed.org, consumerfed.org. Jack, thanks very much. Coming up, more on cars, and don't forget, you can check out our social media accounts, our auto expert on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Nick Miles, and this is our auto expert. I feel very much like uh, it's sort of uh, Charlie's Angels music. I should be in some kind of 70s, uh, you know, garb attire. <laughs> garb attire. Uh, if you want to listen to our auto expert shows, we have them all cataloged for you at ourautoexpert.com. You can see the shows uh, we've done for TV. You can hear the fabulous job we've done on the radio. And you can follow us on social media, our auto expert on Twitter, on Instagram, on the Facebooks. And Jen's personal email is Jen. <laughs> Don't forget Podbean. Oh, Podbean, yes. All of our previous shows on Podbean. Uh, it's always a roller coaster when it comes to Elon Musk and Tesla and electric cars. And Anton Warman is joining us. Uh, Seeking Alpha is where you can read a majority of his material. Anton is our independent investor and analyst. And Anton, uh, it seems that Elon hasn't got himself into too much trouble this week. Never a dull moment, Nick. <laughs> and uh, this week we had a couple of interesting items that occurred, like a bolt out of left field. And uh, one of them was that the company is now starting to offer a $4,000 less expensive version of the Model 3. And you ask, what, what is the difference between the one that was previously offered for $50,200, including destination charge, and the one that is now going to be 46200 And the answer is quite simple. They have just reduced the number of battery cells a little bit, uh, which takes the range down from 
310 miles to 260. And uh, they say that if you uh, jump on the Internet and order them now, they could be delivered as early as 6 to 10 weeks from now. So uh, I need to clarify a couple of things here. First of all, when the Model 3 was initially offered to customers, there were a number of different uh, options. You could have the sort of $60,000 model, which was all in, or you could have a base stripped down model, which was around $30,000 or thirty-five. Is that correct? Not quite, actually. The, uh, at the very beginning, they were only offering the rear-wheel drive okay. version of the car. That is the one that starts... Uh, or started until this week at $50,200, including destination charge. Then they added this summer, around the midpoint of the year, end of June, an all-wheel drive and a performance all-wheel drive version uh, that started at, uh, I think it was right around 55 and 63 or 64,000, respectively. The performance version essentially has the same basic hardware as the regular all-wheel drive version, but you can dolly it up with a variety of uh, more powerful brakes and a couple of other little gizmos like a carbon fiber rear spoiler and so forth for another handful of thousand dollars. Uh, but yeah, the, the, that became sort of the additional model here and substantially most of what the company produced during the third quarter were these two all-wheel drive variants because through the beginning of July, they were really making the rear-wheel drive version only, and they, they stocked up on those. And if you go to your friendly Tesla showroom and uh, delivery center, you'll find uh, many, many of them sitting around still that were produced back in June. Is there Was there an ever an option for a much cheaper version of the Model 3? No, that's the one that just uh, was announced here on... Um, on uh, Thursday evening. So uh, that is the first time the company has given uh, the option to actually configure uh, a lesser priced version of the Model 3. So let's say uh, several other car companies do this. They offer uh, sort of a beefed up version and a lesser version of the vehicle. How does it work out? They've reduced some of the range. Does it does it equal to uh, to what other car companies are doing, or are they charging more or less to for let's say the battery? Well, the electric car market right now, to use a financial uh, markets term, is a bit illiquid in the sense that there is simply too few number of models available to uh, create the kind of very narrowly defined competitive market that we have in almost all other segments in the automotive market. You're looking at a regular mid-sized sedan, you have a Camry and an Accord and a Nissan Altima and a Ford Fusion and a whatever else and a Mazda 6. And they're all very, very similar to each other. So you can really compare them and say, look, these things are truly apples to apples. In the electric car market, we simply don't have that yet because if you look at a Tesla Model S and a Model X and a Model 3, and then you say, well, what's the closest things that compare to it? You really only have two that are even remotely in the ballpark until this moment in time. And they were the first were the Chevrolet Bolt, which many would rightfully argue clearly doesn't really exactly compete with any of these Tesla models because it's front-wheel drive only and it's much shorter vehicle, also much 
lesser expensive vehicle, even though it has a good range of 238 miles. And now comes the Jaguar with the I-Pace. The Jaguar I-Pace uh, is uh, more premium. It starts at $70,000. So from a pricing perspective and an overall conceptual level, compete sort of a little, with a little bit of all the Tesla models, but it doesn't exactly compete with a Model X. It doesn't exactly compete with a Model S, and it doesn't exactly compete with a performance all-wheel drive Tesla Model 3 either. So uh, that's why I'm saying that, you know, you can always make the claim today if you want to be really negative, say, well, this car doesn't really compete with that, therefore it doesn't count. Well, frankly speaking, the consumer today who is interested in buying an all-electric vehicle has to be a little bit flexible. They have to say, well, I would normally have uh, compared cars that were had the exact same body shape and weight and size and so forth. But now I have to look at, I have to you know, you know, draw the circles a little wider. Anton Warman, hold those thoughts. Let's find out how Jaguar are outselling some of its many competitors with their new iPace. That's all coming up as our auto expert continues. We're here. We're doing all God's work as far as cars are concerned. More of our auto expert with Nick Miles is on the way. It's our auto expert with Nick Miles. We are talking uh, with our auto expert and now analyst and independent investor, Anton Wallman. Uh, so, Anton, looks like Jaguar are really excelling in selling the new I-Pace. It's starting to creep up on sales of other electric cars in, around Europe. That's right. So it looks like the uh, uh, sales began in Norway uh, in the last 10 or so days of September. They sold about 140 of them before the end of that month. And so far since October 1st, they have delivered another 240 plus cars. And that actually makes the Jaguar I-Pace into the fourth best-selling EV in Norway, uh, beaten only by the Nissan Leaf, the BMW i3, and the Volkswagen e-Golf. And if you look at the combined sales so far during this time period of the Tesla Model S and the Model X, uh, the Jaguar is actually outselling the Model S and the Model X combined to the tune of 63%. Now, granted, this is still early. We're talking about the first 20 or so days of the month of October, and much can change in a, just a matter of a handful of days. But I think this is an interesting sign in that um, the consumer in Norway, which is, of course, by far and away the most EV-friendly country in the world, 60% of all new car sales have a plug. And uh, what they, they're really the canary in the coal mine to see what is going to happen with the electric car market. The Norwegian consumer gets all the latest cars in most cases, and they are the most, uh, you know, the best educated consumer in the world with respect to EVs. They've got by far and away the most built out uh, electric car charging infrastructure. So if you want to really study the canary in the coal mine, you have to be studying the, Nor the Norwegian market. And uh, the new sales sen sensation is by a wide margin, the new Jaguar items.
but let's be honest when a new car comes out all those people that have been anticipating it waiting for it watching it seen it unveiled at auto shows they've been queuing up getting ready the second they start to become available there's always a surge look at the jeep wrangler earlier this year the second it came to the market its sales went up 78 percent. so isn't this just a knock-on effect of all those that have been waiting for the car to come out Oh, you're certainly right about that to some degree. Absolutely. There are actually another major factor going on here, too, that skews all of this data to the point where we really won't know to what extent that this will hold in the long run until probably well into the next spring. And that is that in the country of the Netherlands, there is a major electric car tax incentive that expires at the end of this calendar year and almost all the automakers be it Jaguar or Tesla or Hyundai or you know Audi is coming online here in the next month or so all of these automakers are diverting uh, a disproportionate share of their electric cars to the Netherlands between now and the end of the year so depending on their own internal policies of how many they choose to then allocate to a, a market like Norway um, you know, these numbers could vary a lot. Take, for example, the Hyundai Kona, widely believed to be one of the most attractive new entries in the market here. They uh, seem to have allocated very, very few units to Norway and are shipping almost everything to the Netherlands thus far. So if that number is skewed, we can probably assume that to at least some degree or another, both the Jaguar and the Tesla and all the BMW and Volkswagen and Kia numbers as well are also a little bit skewed in this regard. Porsche gearing up for their new electric cars to hit the market. Uh, is that going to tip the balance? No, not in a while. I mean, the Porsche is going to start in the U.S. part of the world uh, at at least about $75,000 before incentives. And you know, Porsche, they will have plenty of opportunities to get that price up to double or more. Uh, the car will hit the market at the very tail end of 2019. I talked to one dealer in California who, as of two or three months ago, he said he had 300 deposits. That's just one dealer who had 300 plus deposits in hand for this vehicle and he wasn't sure if he was going to even get 10 or 20 cars you know before the end of next year so uh, the sheer numbers involved and porsche is one of the few automakers that have actually talked about production and quantities they basically said we're going to make a minimum of 20,000 of these and then just the other week they came back and said well we might add another shift and make 30,000 of them but these numbers are on on the on the ba on balance they're pretty small compared to say audi with the e-tron that is on record as having said that they'll be making 200 a day which depending on how many hours you work over there in belgium probably very few will at least lead you to uh, about 50,000 a year so that's clearly a, a higher volume vehicle audi stepping up and announcing an e-tron gt that'll take on the model s 100d is this a, a clear threat to tesla Absolutely. So the first two EVs in, in terms of the larger vehicles that is coming out from Audi, the e-tron and the e-tron Sportback, uh, they were really, I, I would call them like a one-off. Uh, they were, they were something that, that 
you know, they were decided back already in 2013. And uh, that is that kind of platform isn't going to repeat itself into other vehicles. But the Audi e-tron GT that they intend to show here at the Los Angeles Auto Show at the end of November, that is based on the joint platform with Porsche. And so to some extent, it's, it's really the underpinnings of that vehicle is an evolved an evolved Porsche Taycan and uh, probably be a little bit more practical, a little bit more spacious. And Audi promises some absolutely uh, impressive type of performance. We're probably going to see some uh, extreme zero to 60 times and uh, range estimates and whatever else on this thing. So I think this will be a, a bit of a spec monster. And uh, this is something that could go into production before the end of 2021. Audi will also have at least two, if not three, less expensive EVs that are going to be well below the e-tron level uh, that that they showed here the other month. That will be kind of in the you know fifty thousand ish or even lower range. Uh, they will be produced in a variety of factories, both in Europe and in China, and um, we should see them in concept form early next year. But, uh, you know, you're actually going to see at least two or three of them here in pretty short order, uh, which is, I think, more than most people expect. Audi saying that they may delay the uh, new SUV uh, because of software problems, a software bug. Is this just uh, teething problems or is this serious enough to put uh, the, the release of the car back? No, this is actually very fascinating. This just just came out in the last 24 hours, and uh, uh, basically they said that they had to respin the software somehow, and that in order to respin the software, that somehow triggers them to uh, recertify the vehicle for uh, sale in Europe, specifically for the European market, based on the regulations over there. And this opens up an enormously important question because all of these cars now are going to be getting these over-the-air software updates. Tesla was the first to do it, but all of these new cars from the Jaguar I-Pace to all of the new Volkswagens, all the new Mercedes, every single brand will have them. The GM, you go down the list, bar none, they will all have over-the-air software updates. And if this now is going to mean that they are going to be updating these cars more frequently, then any update that they send over the air is going to trigger a recertification of the vehicle for sale at least in the European market. And ask yourself, what happens to Tesla then? Tesla's been doing this thing for years now. They send out updates sometimes as often as once every handful of weeks. Uh, to my knowledge, they've never recertified any of their vehicles. Will these types of rules now apply to them as well? And of course, also the, all the other automakers. I don't expect that what Audi did here is something really, really big. I think that they're uh, probably responding to a new firmness in the rulemaking and enforcement by the European certification authorities that they are likely to start enforcing among all the automakers. And this is going to be one of the most fascinating and interesting developments that we need to watch here in the coming months because this will have real impact across all automakers. So there's an interesting development if you're an electric car owner already. Google Maps now showing where you can actually charge your plug-in vehicle. That should be convenient for a lot of people who own them. Yeah, this is one of those things that uh, Google Maps didn't do that already. Uh, I could have sworn one way or the other <laughs> they had at least some of these chargers on Google Maps. But I think what they did here is that they have expanded uh, their availability with these other networks that are coming up. I think more importantly, when you look at Electrify America, which of course is funded by Volkswagen thanks to the diesel settlement, 
they really came out in the last week or so here and showed uh, a long list of stations that are either uh, launching this week or are imminent in, you know, in the next couple of weeks. And this, this whole thing is finally mushrooming. And these are very powerful stations. And they're going to be in the very first phase, I think, is about 475 of them across the interstate freeways across America. And, and the plan calls for over 2,000 of these stations. This is something that is absolutely of of the highest importance for the industry. These will be high quality stations that have allowed it to be reliable and have a high percentage of uptime and, and uh, provide anywhere between 150 kilowatt up to 350 kilowatt worth of charging. This will essentially set the gold standard for electric car charging in terms of both convenience and capacity. So it won't be long until all of us are going to be out uh, testing uh, EVs, uh, fueling them at these stations and uh, reporting on uh, the experience. Give it just another small handful of months here Nick and I think we'll be doing just that. When I get off the air today I'm heading to the airport to go to Sacramento to drive the new uh, Hyundai Nexo uh, their hydrogen car it'll be an interesting concept to drive but is hydrogen and Hyundai is this a likely production vehicle or is this just another experiment? Well, I drove it uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I will tell you a couple of things. First of all, the interior of that vehicle, I think they misnamed the vehicle. They call it the Nexo, which nobody has a clue uh, what it is or will ever remember it. They should have simply called it Chill, because you felt like you were chilling in this car. This car is so comfy and cushy. Even the steering wheel is soft as butter, and the, the seat is great. It has one of the most beautiful interiors of any car. The car is, of course, butter uh, uh, smooth like any electric car it is not very powerful this is not one of the more powerful electric cars uh, so you're you're kind of induced to drive in a chilly chilly mode there's actually a chill button on a tesla that basically uh, zips the power of a lot of the power and i think that is very apt here in this description now when it comes to the powertrain this is of course hydrogen very powerful range here 380 miles but the weakness in the whole equation is simply this the cost of the hydrogen is absolutely insane now they're going to give you three years worth of fuel for free. But what happens after these three years? What is, I mean, you would never want to buy this vehicle. You would need to lease it because once this lease is over, you have no control over uh, basically what the fuel is going to cost. Right now, this fuel is, I, I made a calculation that on a cost per mile basis at the, the current nationwide gasoline price and comparing it to a Toyota RAV4 hybrid, probably the single most direct comparison in the gasoline world, it is 3.2 times more expensive on a per mile basis to drive the Hyundai Nexo if you actually had to pay for the fuel, which they will make sure that in the current lease offering for 36 months, you don't pay a dime of it. But let's say they were selling the vehicle uh, off the peg, uh, just off the lot, and you had to actually pay for the fuel based on the way it is priced at the stations today. I mean, nobody would buy it. It's all about the cost of the fuel. The rest of the car is beyond lovely. All right, Anton Wallman, you can read his uh, articles at uh, seekingalpha.com. He is our independent investor and analyst. Anton, thank you for joining us, as always. It's a great pleasure to have you on board uh, the show. You can, of course, listen to the show 24-7 at ourautoexpert.com. Online, we have all the social media accounts for your pleasure, which includes Twitter, Facebook, and the Instagrams, where we have beautiful pictures of beautiful cars. We'll be back next week with a radio show that a million Americans listen to. Our Auto Expert.